Um, so we've heard of it. So, but scripture is very clear from beginning to end that we are engaged in a war. And there's really only two sides. There's God and there's the snake. And so with this uh, really Christmas series, but also um, in general, this sermon, it's my hope that this war will become real to us, uh, that we will um, wage war using our most powerful weapon, namely waiting upon the snake crusher, waiting upon Jesus. I'm using waiting in multiple ways. Uh, You're waiting. How are you waiting? You're waiting in prayer. You're waiting by serving the Lord. You're literally waiting upon him. And then also like he, he's not come back yet. He came the first time and we're awaiting the second coming. And so we're literally waiting upon him. So he initiates the end of this war by his first coming. And that's what we're celebrating during Christmas. But we celebrate the first coming that we might have strength to wait and endure for his second coming. That's the idea. So as we're looking at Genesis, I want to look at three things. First, We're going to look at Genesis 1 through 3 through what's called, what I'm calling the lens of covenant or promise. And then second, we're going to look at specifically um, God's promise of blessing that finds its way in the middle of a curse. And then finally, we'll look, and this is more of a call just for us, a call to wait in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ as he comes um, soon. So our first point, and it'll have some sub points because I like sub points. Uh, First point is this, the breaking of the covenant of creation is the cause of the war between God and the snake. The breaking of the covenant of creation is the cause of the war between God and the snake. And so there's questions that could come to mind. Why is there a war? Why, Why do we have to commence in spiritual warfare? Why is there a need for peace between mankind and God? Why is there a need for reconciliation between creation and creator. These are all questions that are answered in the first three chapters of Genesis. And so our first sub point, and this is a mouthful, so I apologize. Uh, sub point A, ancient Near Eastern suzerain vassal treaties. Say that 10 times fast. Ancient Near Eastern suzerain vassal treaties provide a cultural backdrop for interpreting Genesis. A suzerain is a strong king. A vassal is a weak king. And so these are treaties between a strong king and a weak king or an alliance, a contract, a promise made between two. And so we're going to look at covenant. R.C. Sproul defines covenant like this. He says, uh, essentially, it's a, a contract or a vow. And he gives a couple of modern examples. So take John Luke's idea, or sorry, John Locke's idea of the social contract. Political representatives bound to uphold the Constitution and people bound to submit to the Constitution and those governing uh, in its stead. Or, or take a job contract. I sign on to be a, a waiter or I sign on to be a worker at a school, a high school teacher. They promise me a certain set of money if I uphold my obligations and they give me my salary. Or you could take marriage as another example, modern day example, right? Vows are exchanged. Promises are made. Two people are promising to be one person uh, with one another and faithful and trustworthy with one another. These are all covenants. But when we're talking about biblical covenants within Genesis, R.C. Sproul makes one distinction. Biblical covenants are covenants that God initiates with people. God is the strong king and we are the weak king or weak queen. Um, in this uh, case. So there's another guy. His name's uh, George Mendenhall. Uh, he wrote a book, and it is, uh, I wouldn't recommend reading it because it's kind of boring, but I'm going to summarize it. He wrote a book called Law and Covenant in Israel and Ancient Near East. And basically what happened is uh, he took a bunch of findings that they had done in archaeological digs in the uh, Middle East, and they had found a bunch of uh, contracts or treaties made by the Hittites in the Mesopotamia area right around the same time that allegedly Genesis and, you know, Genesis through Deuteronomy would have been written. And one of the interesting things they noted was, just like in the Bible, the covenants shared the same kind of overlap or promises or components that these ancient Near Eastern treaties shared. So the Hittites had the same cultural practice in their culture And they lived around the Israelites, and the Israelites also had this cultural practice. So it kind of just, he used it as a way of like saying, look, the Bible, it's not like they're just making stuff up. This is what people did back then uh, during this time period. But anyways, in the Bible and in these covenants, he identifies five parts to it. The first part is the preamble. 
It identifies who is this, who's the strong king. Who's the one making this covenant? The second part is he called it the historical prologue. Essentially, it's a brief synopsis or story, or it could be a little bit longer, of who and why the strong king is making a covenant with the weaker king. The third part were the stipulations or the commands. Here's what's owed to the strong king. Here's what the strong king owes to you. This is the obedience that's required. The fourth thing would be the sanctions. These are the blessings that will happen because you obeyed the covenant, or these are the curses that will be brought upon you because you broke covenant. And then the fifth thing is like a sign of the covenant or witnesses or some kind of ritual that initiates this covenant is signed, it's stamped, and it's approved. So I'll give you an example from the Bible. We'll take one of the most familiar covenants, the Mosaic one, Moses, right? The giving of the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, verse 2, we find the preamble and the historical prologue. It says this, I am the Lord your God. He's the strong king. Uh, Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery? So that's the prologue. This is why we came into relationship. I brought you out of slavery, out of Egypt, and now you're my people. What are the the stipulations? What are the commandments? Well, verses 3 through 17 in the same passage, it's the Ten Commandments. He just lists off the Ten Commandments. What are the sanctions? What are the blessings and curses? Uh, Later on in a book called, uh, in the book Deuteronomy, uh, chapters 27 and 28 outline the blessings and the curses that come upon God's people if they obey or they fail to obey God's uh, law, the Ten Commandments. The fifth part, the deposit. Uh, These are the actual covenant, the the tablets. God wrote on them the Ten Commandments. Moses then stores them in the Ark of the Covenant. Covenant, covenant. And then he takes the Ark of the Covenant and he puts it in the Holy of Holies. And that's usually where it would rest. So it's in the temple. And that served as a reminder that you are in covenant with God. And here are your sanctions and commandments uh, that are owed to it. So all that, you know, to say this. Did God make a covenant with Adam and Eve when he created the world? That's my question. Did God make a covenant with Adam and Eve at creation? And I'm going to argue yes. We find first these five things that I just went over, and the second we find a few more pieces of evidence. So uh, in Genesis uh, 1.1, the strong king is identified. In the beginning, God. That's the strong king. And then if you keep reading, verses 2 through Chapter 2 and 25, it's a description of God creating the world in seven days and then creating Eden and then placing man and woman within Eden and naming the animals and all that. And so there's this historical prologue of the relationship between God and man, mankind. What about uh, the commandments? Are there any commandments in this passage? Genesis 1.28 says this. uh, God says to Adam and Eve, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis two sixteen through 17 says this, The Lord God commanded man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And so there's the, the commandments. What about blessings and curses? Well, we saw at the end of that passage, In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. That's not a blessing, that's a curse. Um, in Genesis three fourteen through 19, in verse 24, God comes and he curses the snake, he curses the woman, he curses the man, and then ultimately he bars Adam and Eve from being in the garden so that they cannot eat of the tree of life. All of those are the curses, curse language of the covenant. What about the deposit, the fifth element? The deposit is actually Adam and Eve themselves. They are made in the image of God and they're placed in Eden, which is the first temple of God, and they're given rule over all of creation. I I call Eden the first temple of God because when they're barred from the tree of life, uh, there's some cherubim that are set up with flaming swords, just in case you you weren't going to go back there. And they were to bar, they were to keep Adam and Eve and anybody from going back into the garden. Fast forward, Moses is given commands to make the first tabernacle or the the prototype of Solomon's temple, right? And in this, he makes the tabernacle. And one of the commands he's given is that there's supposed to be a curtain that separates the Holy of Holies from everywhere else. And on this curtain, there's supposed to be the image of cherubim stitched along it. Again, reminding us that we're still barred from the tree of life. We're barred from relationship with God. And that was referring back to Adam and Eve. And so you see covenant language 
all the way throughout Genesis. There's a couple more kind of pieces of evidence outside of those five parts. God's covenantal name or his memorial name is used. Anytime in your Bible where you see Lord in all caps, if it's all caps in the Old Testament, it's the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's his covenant name. It's his name that his people will remember him forever by. Uh, a little bit later in Genesis six eighteen, God promises Noah that he'll establish his covenant with Noah. And then in Genesis 9, after the flood, he says this to Noah and his sons and his family, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He reiterates the same covenant commandment that he gave to Adam and Eve, but now he gives it to Noah. And so it's this idea that God is reestablishing his relationship with the world, this time through Noah. And kind of like Adam and Eve, that didn't work out well either. And so all that was just to get us to the point of being able to say, when we read Genesis 1 through 3, we should see at the heart of it is a covenant relationship between God and Adam and Eve. And that's going to set us up for seeing this war, so to speak. So our next sub point, we're going to look particularly at um, what are the ramifications of a broken covenant with God. And this says this, all who are in Adam are under the just judgment and curse of God. All who are in Adam are under the just judgment and curse of God. And this is coming from verses 8 through 10 of Genesis chapter 3. It says this, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. So in verse 8, already the phrase sound of the Lord God and matched up with the verb heard. They heard the sound of the Lord God is already giving us this kind of allusion to God's coming in judgment. Because Moses, right, the Jews held that Moses wrote and put together the book of Genesis through Deuteronomy. And so Genesis and Deuteronomy through Deuteronomy actually share themes. And any time where the sound of God is matched up with heard, there's a statement of you must obey Right? Hear, O Israel, the word of God, right? You must obey. Like that, the Shema, that's the, like that's the core of Judaism. But then also like throughout, there's also this idea that God's coming and he's asking you to give an account for what your obedience is. And so John Selhammer points this out and he says, anytime the verb to hear and the sound of the Lord God is matched up, it indicates a call to obedience. He lists off Deuteronomy 5.25 chapter 8, verse 20, chapter 13, verse 19, chapter 15, verse 5. He lists off a ton. I just wrote down four. Um, all throughout the first five books of the Bible. And so already here, we've got this illusion of God is coming in judgment. He's not just coming like to take a walk, so to speak. So the actual uh, words read this way in Hebrew. They heard the Lord God walking in the garden in the wind of the day. So instead of cool of the day, the Hebrew word for cool is actually the word wind. It can also mean spirit or breath. And what some commentators did with the word cool of the day, they said, well, that must indicate the time of day in which the sun is not scorching. And so they translate it as the coolness of the day or the cool of the day. Uh, but because we've read this in light of covenant and we've seen heavy evidence for covenant and we've seen that Adam and Eve have just freshly disobeyed God, I don't think it's right to read this as God's coming in the cool part of the day. He's actually coming in the wind. He's coming in a storm. Imagine trees just blowing, and then you hear the sound of Yahweh, and then you think to yourself, in the day that you eat of that fruit, you will surely die, and you go, you go hide in the trees. That's kind of what's going on here. Uh, Selhammer says that this is better understood as God coming in judgment in a windstorm like we see throughout the Bible, and he lists off 1 Kings 19.11, or perhaps a more familiar one in Job 38, 1, uh, after Job's speeches and his friend's speeches, finally God shows up and speaks for himself, and he shows up in a storm. And he says, I'm going to address you now. Listen. And he says, who are you? And basically just gives this huge, um, uh, demonstrating that he's sovereign over all of creation, the wisdom that goes into running the world, and Job is speechless. Um, Selhammer also points out here that, this is the first time in the Bible where mankind, when they hear the sound of God, they're afraid, right? I mean, that's common sense. We can see that. But this is a theme that goes throughout the Bible. Anytime God shows up in his holiness, so I think Isaiah 6, where he sees God high and lifted up in the temple, and Isaiah's uh, 
his response is, I am woefully undone. I am a man of unclean lips. Or we could think of like Sinai, when God shows up and brings down the Ten Commandments. This is the uh, Israelites' response to Moses. They say, you speak to us, Moses, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Already, this is echoing back from Adam and Eve. They're no longer walking with God, and they're hiding from Him, because in the day that they eat of the fruit, they shall surely die. And so now the sound of the Lord, which was once an invitation to walk with Him, and to participate in life is now a instilling of fear and a thinking that death is coming. Verse 9 says, uh, the Lord God called to him. Again, this is covenantal language. Uh, commentator Kasuda uh, states this, The Lord God called is a call for man to account for his conduct. It was used by other enraged suzerains or strong kings to introduce their complaints by calling on their covenant partners for explanations of their actions. He gives a couple examples in the book of Genesis. Uh, in Genesis twelve eighteen, it says, Pharaoh called Abram. And the context of this is, Abram had just uh, lied to Pharaoh, basically saying that his wife, uh, Sarai at this time, not Sarah, uh, she, uh, she's just his sister. She's not really his wife. And Pharaoh wanted to marry her because of that. And then all of a sudden he found himself under the curses of God. And so he calls Abram, he called Abram, to give an account for why would you do this? Why did you do this to me? And then they, exp- you know, they explain it. And that, that actually happens two other times in the book of Genesis. King Abimelech for the same reason with Abraham. And then another King Abimelech with Abraham's son Isaac. Also the same reason. Lying about their wife um, being just their sister. Um, and both times it says, in all three times it says, they called Abram. Called Isaac. And so now God is calling um, Adam. And he says, where are you? Uh, Adam's, uh, Adam's response echoes the flow of events found in verse 8 with one additional piece of information. He says he hid because he was naked. And so contrast this with Genesis 2.25. says this in 2.25, And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. And now we find Adam and Eve covered with the fig leaves that they made themselves and ashamed. And so it's already flip-flopped. The relationship between mankind and God is already kind of flip-flopped. The bottom line is, is Adam's sin broke the covenant between God and creation. His disobedience then affected all of creation. Uh, we see this in the New Testament, Romans five twelve. Um, Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. He also writes in 1 Corinthians 15, For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Systematic theologians call this the doctrine of federal headship. It's the idea that Adam was the head of all of mankind, and when he fell, all of mankind fell with him. But you don't even have to go into the systematic theology. It's, it's more like this. Adam was in covenant with God, and all of mankind was in covenant with God. And when Adam, our king, broke covenant with God, God went to war with his creation. That's the idea here. And so, all who are in Adam are under the just judgment and curse of God. We see this also a little bit in Genesis, so we don't even have to go to the New Testament to see the results of this eating of the fruit. Genesis 6, 5 says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then that's when the flood happens. And so we could also think, I think we could think to outside of the Bible evidence. We could think about the evils that are happening around us. We could think about the evils that we are daily committing uh, within our own hearts with one another um, as well. So we are, in a sense, this is what it's saying. If we're in Adam, we are covenant breakers. And sin has touched now every aspect of his creation. And so we're going to look specifically at sin. This is letter C. Sin is the disordering of the order of creation and our loves and our desires. So sin is a disordering of both the creational pattern, but it's also a disordering of our desires, our loves, our wants. And this is going to come to us from verses 11 through 13, which say, He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? 
The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So verse 11 picks up where a commentator Winham calls it the cross-examination in the court of God's covenant. Who told you that you were naked? Right? Indicates that Adam's previous answer where he talked about, I hid because I was naked. This is already hinting at he's guilty. And so God's next question is, have you eaten from the tree of which I've commanded you not to eat? And it's a yes or no question. In verse 12, he doesn't give a yes or no answer, right? Have you eaten it or have you not? Well, this is Adam's response. He gives 10 words in Hebrew. And the very last word is I ate. So 90% of his sentence blames someone outside of himself. And then 10% of his sentence, the very last word, says, yeah, I did eat it. Um, I ate. And so he, he blames two people. First, he blames Eve. He says, the woman, she gave to me of the tree, and I ate. And then second, he blames God. The woman you gave to be with me. It's a gift chain of blame, right? He's blaming all the givers of the sentence. God, you gave the woman to be with me, and she gave me the food, and I ate. So we, I don't think you have to think too hard about a time maybe in which... Uh, you were guilty of something and someone was bringing perhaps an accusation and your first impulse might be something of like, well, you know, yeah, I, I own some of it, but uh, not all of it. Also, there was this guy or this person, or I could give like an example of my children, which is a daily example. It's also a daily example of me. Uh, Eliana, did you hit Macrina? She pinched me and Roland was yelling at me. Eliana, did you hit Macrina? Yes or no? Uh, yeah, I hit him. I hit her. Or Bobby, this is a high school student, right, at, at school. Uh, could you grab the trash at your table? I noticed that you guys left it there. Yeah, but uh, this is not my trash. This is other people's trash. I was just sitting here. Other people left their trash. Bobby, could you, uh, could you just take that trash out? Even just in the small things, we tend to try to deflect blame upon other people. And that's what Adam is doing here. Um, he mentions nothing of the serpent. And so Adam's admission of guilt is just one word and it's saved for the very end. God saw in all his creation that it was not, God, that it was not good for man to be alone. So when he created all things, he saw that it was all good. There's only one place in the Bible where he said it wasn't good. And it was when he saw Adam and he was like, it's not good for man to be alone. And he created uh, Eve so that they could be together. And now sinful man looks back at God and says, it is not good that you gave the woman to be with me. Sin is already infested and infected both Adam's vertical relationship with God and now his horizontal relationship with Eve, his wife. Contrast, you know, his statement here, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate, with this joyous song, perhaps the first song of all of Scripture, the first poetry of all of Scripture, of Adam in 2.23 when he says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Sin has flipped everything on its head. And I'm sure, again, we've, we've experienced this in our own lives where one day it's a great and joyous friendship and perhaps the next day we're estranged or next month or whatever it might end up because sin has entered the relationship. Uh, verse 13 God's done with Adam. Adam gave his 10-word sentence. He now turns to Eve. She re responds very simply to God's question. She gives three Hebrew words instead of 10. And there's probably a joke in there about how women are very much better at communicating than men, but maybe not. I don't know. But she gives three Hebrew words. Two of them are used to blame the serpent, and then one is, and I ate. Just like Adam said, I ate at the very end of the sentence. So both Adam, so she says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So both Adam and Eve's statements end with the word I ate, and they kind of shift the blame at the beginning of the sentence towards someone else. Adam blames Eve and God who gave her to him. Eve blames the snake for tricking her. And so now we see that not only is sin infested and infected our uh, relationship with God, vertical relationship, and our relationship between men and women here, but now it's, it's uh, infected our relationship between mankind and creation itself, the beast of the field. Um, he gave it to me. 
It has flipped the world of authority upside down. It's flipped the, the creational pattern that God gave upside down. Um, and we see this in the curses. He goes to the snake first. He then goes to Eve. Then he goes to Adam. In the creation account in Genesis 1-2, through 2, it says, God created man, and out of man He created woman, and He made them together in the image of God to rule over creation, including the beasts of the field. So God, mankind, beasts of the field. And now what we see here is a beast deceives Eve. Adam takes the fruit from Eve and eats it and then blames God for it. Beast, mankind, God is now at the bottom. All of the structure of creation has been flipped upside down and disordered. Sin is ultimately a disordering of our loves and a disordering of what God has intended for uh, his creation to be like. Uh, The African theologian Augustine uh, perhaps the most influential philosopher and theologian outside of the Bible on Western civilization. He writes this in his book on Christian teaching or doctrine. He writes, but, and he's talking about how do you live a good life? What's the good life look like? How does one live good or just? But living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things. What does that mean? To love things, that is to say, in the right order. So that you do not love what is not to be loved, or fail to love what is to be loved, or have a greater love for what should be loved less, or an equal love for things that should be loved less or more, or a lesser or greater love for things that should be loved equally. So essentially saying, if you want to be holy, you have to love things in the right order. If you don't love things in the right order, it'll actually twist holiness into sinfulness. Paul says essentially the same thing in Romans 1. Um, commenting on the state of creation after the fall of mankind. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Another guy, uh, Pastor Brian Lowe, he's a head of Acts 29 Southeast Division. He says it this way, it's very succinct and i like this when a good thing in our hearts becomes a god thing that is a bad thing when a good thing is made a god thing it actually becomes a bad thing and that's the state of mankind after the broken covenant so now that we've seen that genesis 1 through 3 should be uh seen in the world really should be read through this idea of a broken covenant between mankind and god we're now going to look at uh the curses that he brought to the serpent But particularly, we're going to see that there's a blessing hidden in the midst of a curse. And so the second point is this. The blessing of God's covenant is hidden in the middle of God's curse. The blessing of God's covenant is hidden in the middle of God's curse. And this is going to come from verses 14 through 15. So as we turn toward the curse of the snake, uh, here we'll find that God is bringing about the sanctions of this now broken covenant of creation. And in this curse, we'll find this war that we've been alluding to between God and the snake. And so our subpoint here is, uh, subpoint A is, the offspring of the snake are those who are ruled and enslaved by sin. The offspring of the snake are those who are ruled and enslaved by sin. And this comes from verses 14 to 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So verse 14 starts off with the Lord, Yahweh, God. Again, it's bringing covenant right back into our mindset. It's Yahweh, the memorial name of God. He's coming. And he has now reached a verdict, and he's dealing out the sanctions, the curses, and God does this. He doesn't even interview the snake. He, he talks to Adam, he talks to Eve, and then he pronounces his judgment. The snake has no place in the court, so to speak. God gives this curse a visible consequence, right? So he says this, you know, in 3.1, it says that the serpent was the craftiest of all the beasts of the field. And now here it says he is more cursed than all the livestock and more than all the beasts of the field. And there's this visible consequence that he gives. This, uh, the snake will go upon his belly and he will eat dust all the days of his life. I don't think this is talking necessarily about like snakes had legs one time and then their legs were taken away from another. I don't think any of that has anything to do with this text. Uh, but 
the curse is actually more um, symbolic. It's explaining uh, different things. First, it's ironic. Um, he deceived Eve to eating something, and Adam ate something, and now, as a result, he has to eat something. It's further ironic because the thing he has to eat is dust. Adam it was made from dust, and then it says that Adam will return to the dust in death, and so the serpent has to eat dust. And then second, uh, commentator Winham points out that eating of the dust uh, was a description of humiliation, but particularly a humiliation of fallen kings or conquered enemies. And he gives Isaiah 49, 23. It says, Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Finally, kind of in this curse, it seems to transcend just the natural order of things. Isaiah 65, when he's talking about the new heavens and the new earth and restored creation, and everything's restored in the kingdom of God, in verse 25 it says, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. So even in the, when God restores everything, dust is still the serpent's food. This curse still belongs properly to this serpent. And so who is this serpent is kind of our, our question. This war is found in this curse. I will put enmity between you, the snake, and the, the woman, and between the snake's offspring and her offspring, the offspring are not merely biological. We're not talking about just the children of Eve and snake children, whatever that would look like, little baby snakes, I guess. That's not at all what's going on here. So it's not talking about biological descendants particularly. Um, so how do we know this? Well, there's a couple of things. We can look at the New Testament. Romans 16, 20 uh, says this, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He's talking to the church. And he says, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. And he's alluding back to Genesis 3, this snake crusher verse. Uh, and then the very next thing he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Uh, so here he calls him Satan. It's not a serpent, it's Satan. Uh, in, Je- in Revelation twelve nine, it says this, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So this snake is identified in the New Testament as both the devil and Satan, the accuser, the deceiver of the world. It's not merely a beast of the field. The second way that we see it's not uh, biological is actually from Genesis itself. Uh, so when God comes to the snake and says, you are cursed, that verb, that phrase is only used one other time in all of Genesis. It's in the very next chapter, and it's talking about when God comes to Cain after he kills Abel. It says this, um, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And so don't miss that the first story or the first account after the fall of mankind and being kicked out of the garden is an account about the two offspring of Eve, Cain and Abel. And so uh, Cain offers the first fruits of, his gr- of the ground to God, and it says that God had no regard for his offering. Abel offered the firstborn of his flock. And it says in Genesis, God had regard for Abel and his offering. So Cain kind of gets angry because he's, why don't you have regard for me, God? And God responds to him and says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain kills Abel. He doesn't rule over it. In fact, sin ruled over Cain. Thus, the serpent ruled over Cain. And so in it, we already see a fight between the two offspring of Eve is actually a fight between the offspring of Eve and the offspring of the serpent because he was ruled by sin. And so here lies the invisible war in which we all partake in. And so the question becomes, how is this going to be won? How is this war going to be won? And so subpoint B says this, Jesus is the offspring of of Eve, who will crush the head of the snake. And this comes from verse 15. So in the middle of this curse, God actually gives the, um, the reversal of the curse, right in the midst of it. The offspring of woman, it's, she's not just going, or he's not going to just crush the offspring of the snake. It says in this, the offspring will actually crush the snake's head. He will bruise your head. It's not offspring versus offspring. It's literally the offspring of Eve 
will bruise Satan's head and you shall bruise his heel. So the offspring will actually crush the snake and restore order um, and put the snake back where he belongs um, in the food chain, so to speak. Uh, But the question becomes then, who is this offspring? I already alluded to it, right? Jesus. Selhammer writes this, John Selhammer. Who is the seed of the woman? Becomes the question of all of Genesis. And the remainder of the book is the author's answer. And then I would add to that, the remainder of the Old and New Testament is actually God's answer to this question. Who is this offspring of Eve? And we've alluded to it. We believe it is Jesus the Christ, the King, the strong King. Why do we say this? So I'm going to give some outside of the Bible evidence. I'm going to give some inside the Bible evidence. The the first thing is kind of outside. This is from um, the Septuagint and various Jewish traditions called the Targums. Different rabbis made comments on Genesis 3 about what they thought it was. Um, And this comes from us from a commentator named Gerdanus. Uh, He writes, "The, The Jewish Targums held that this verse was referring to a victory over Satan in the days of King Messiah. So even some of the Jewish rabbis, when they read this verse, they saw this was a victory over Satan by the future coming Messiah. Our second kind of piece of evidence, the early church universally understood this verse to refer to Jesus. Hence why the passage becomes very quickly known as the Protoevangelium, which just means the first gospel. It becomes known in the early church as the first gospel. The New Testament, we've already seen some of this. The New Testament connects this passage to Jesus. Romans sixteen twenty. the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Why, why did Paul add the phrase, born of a woman? Because that's literally true of every single human being except for Adam. Why add that to Jesus's kind of, um, you know, his job description, so to speak? It's because Jesus was not born from Adam. He was born from only a woman, right? And so he is the offspring. He's being alluded to as the one who's going to reverse. He's going to redeem us who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And kind of the final kicker, in my, my opinion, is Genesis itself follows this train of thought. Genesis itself makes this the focal point of the book. So this word, uh, Genesis 3.15, the word offspring is used 40 other times in the book of Genesis. It starts here. It's the first time it's used. Um, And then it's used 40 other times. And most of those appearances are referring or furthering this promise. And so I'll give you some examples. The next time it's used, we see it after Cain kills Abel. Eve has another son named Seth. And Eve declares this after she has Seth. She says, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. So she's looking for this this offspring who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And she's celebrating with Seth. And then later, Seth has a son. His name's Enosh. And it says this in Genesis. At that time, the birth of Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The next offspring statement we see is when God is making a covenant and promises with Noah to him and his offspring. And he reiterates the covenant that we talked about, the covenant of creation. You go beyond that in Genesis 12, the next time God makes a promise to Abraham that his offspring will bring blessing to all the nations who bless him and curses to all those who curse him. And then you follow that. That promise is reiterated over and over and over again. It's passed from Abraham to his son, Isaac. A couple of times. Isaac is then passing it to Jacob a couple of times. And then as we uh, go from Jacob, it takes a a turn where the promise changes from just mere offspring of Abraham to, well, it's actually going to be in the line of Judah. And there's a kingly element. This is going to be a kingly offspring. And so in uh, Genesis 49, 10, when Jacob is blessing all of his children, he turns to Judah and he says this, the scepter, the sign of kingship will not depart from Judah. And so there's this promise that Judah, the kings will come through you, and the offspring is going to continue through Judah. Why would I say Judah? Why is the offspring going to continue through him? So in Genesis 37, the story of Joseph is started. And from Genesis 37 through 50, it's all about Joseph, the whole book. 
But imagine yourself watching a movie, and about 10 minutes into the movie, a new movie comes on, completely different from the movie that you were just watching. 10 minutes of it shows, and then it goes back to that original movie, and then the rest of it shows. That's essentially what Genesis does here. In chapter 37, it starts the movie of Joseph. In chapter 38, it goes to this completely random story about Judah and Tamar. And it's a despicable story about Judah and Tamar, where Judah um, accidentally, on purpose, uh, basically has children through his daughter-in-law. And it's just this despicable, twisted story, right? And then in chapter 39, it goes right back to Joseph and continues his story through 50. Why did, did just like... Are there multiple authors and someone just threw this into Genesis? Or did Moses have like an intentional reason for why he shifted the focus on Judah? Well, through Judah came twins. Uh, Judah and Tamar, they had twins. And one of the twins' name was Perez. And that name doesn't necessarily become important until the book of Ruth. Later on in the book of Ruth, after Boaz and Ruth are um, married... And God, or sorry, the, the women of the town of Jerusalem, they're, sorry, Bethlehem, they're giving a blessing. They're pronouncing blessing over uh, Ruth and Boaz. They say this, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Perez, right? And now we've got Ruth. Ruth has Obed. Obed has Jesse. Jesse has David. David becomes king of Israel. And then God reiterates the promise. He further transforms the promise. So it's the offspring of Eve, the offspring of Abraham and his children. It's going to be a kingly offspring through, through Judah. And now he reiterates the promise to David. And he says, one of your offspring will sit on the throne forever. And so David has now reiterated this promise. And now we're following his offspring, so to speak. And finally, in the New Testament, we arrive at Jesus, who's born of a woman in the line of Seth, Enosh, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Perez, David, and some of David's sons. He is the offspring who will crush the serpent's head. God blessed Adam and Eve with the fruit of the trees to eat from. Adam sinned by eating of the fruit of the forbidden tree. Adam and Eve covered their nakedness with the leaves of the tree. And then they hid from God among the trees. And God exiled them to bar them from the tree of life. And now God, through Jesus Christ, reverses the curse by nailing His Son, Jesus, on a tree. Fulfilling Deuteronomy 21. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ becomes the curse of the broken covenant on our behalf. That we might receive the blessings. He's crowned literally with Adam's curse. When Adam comes to the mount, to the uh, when God comes to Adam and he curses him, he says, "Cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles will bear." Jesus gets the crown made of thorns, the very curse that Adam brought about, and he's crowned with it as king. And he dies on the cross to reverse the curse. And as Genesis twenty-one seventeen says at the end of it, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Jesus died in our place. Jesus is the snake crusher. He's already stomped Satan's head. And in the second coming, he'll ultimately vanquish Satan's sin and death for good. And so now we see, even now, how the war is fought. It's fought via the crucifixion of Christ. It's fought via the gospel of Jesus Christ. Crucify ourselves that we might Receive life, right? So point number three, and kind of our last concluding point. Wait in the grace. Wait in grace upon the God of peace. For soon, he will ultimately crush Satan under our feet. And this comes from Romans sixteen twenty, which we'll read um, at the end of this. So in conclusion, from Genesis three fifteen, there's been a war between God and the snake. And the offspring of God, those who are in Christ, and the offspring of the snake, those who are enslaved and ruled by sin. uh, It's one of the lenses that really the entire Bible can be read through. And so I want to show it in multiple uh, relational lenses. So we see this war, first of all, individually in ourselves. Romans 7 says it this way. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Romans 8 continues. 
uh, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the spirit, by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So we see this war individually in our own hearts, in our own bodies. We see it between individuals, between people. We saw it with Cain and Abel. Even though it looked like physically they're brothers, they're literally fighting a war against each other. There's enmity between them. Or how about when the Pharisees say to Jesus, we are the offspring of Abraham. And Jesus responds to him in John eight forty four, You are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. That's his response to him. Their will was to do their father's desires. How do we know this? Well, they didn't recognize Jesus. If they would have loved God, Jesus' argument is, if you love God, you would love me because I'm his son. But their will was to do contrary to it. And ultimately, they crucify him. Uh, we see this between church members. It's not, it's not just between non-Christians and Christians. We see it between church members. Second um, Corinthians 2, 10 through 11 is written uh, by Paul. And it's referring to a guy who was thrown out of the Corinthian church for uh, sexual sin that he had committed. And he's thrown out of the church because he wasn't repentant at all. And, and by the time of 2 Corinthians is written, the Corinthians had welcomed him back because he had repented of his sin and they forgave him. And so Paul's writing to him, well, I forgive whoever you forgive. I, I trust that you, if you forgive him, I forgive him. And it says this in 2 Corinthians uh, 2, 10 through 11. Uh, Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I, for, if I forgive anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his designs. So even when a person repents of sin and then we extend forgiveness to said person, whether it's someone sinned against you or whatever it is, and they they say, hey, I sinned against you. I'm sorry about that. Could you ever forgive me? And when we extend forgiveness, we are literally fighting the very war that I'm talking about. We're not being outwitted by Satan and we're not being ignorant by his designs. So forgiveness is part of this war that we're referencing. Uh, we see it between nations and peoples or heads of peoples or kings. Pharaoh in Egypt and uh, Moses in Israel would be an example uh, in the book of Exodus. This, uh, First of all, when they cross the Red Sea, uh, Moses writes a song. And it's a psalm. It appears in the Psalms as well. But it's also in, I think, Exodus 15. Uh, and in it, this psalm basically just sings about how God defeated Pharaoh in the war. He defeated Egypt and he had freed his people from the war. And um, so even in that, Moses had that mentality. And we'll, we'll see a little bit more. Also, like just looking at Egyptian symbols in general, the headdresses of Pharaohs, like you could literally look at just about every headdress I've ever seen, which I don't see them often, but I looked them up intentionally. So I actually saw them. Uh, every headdress usually had a cobra or even two snakes at its head. When you look at pictures of their gods, Ra, their head god, like their big, powerful god, the sun, when God covers the sun, that's a war against Ra, by the way. But when you look look at pictures of Ra, the snake is wrapped around Ra, and he's there sitting just like the pharaohs. And so even in the symbols of Egypt, they're literally wearing a snake at their head, and they're standing against God and his promises. And so when Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, Yahweh, the strong king, says, let my people go. There's an invisible war happening. Pharaoh is under the influence of sin and he hardens his heart and he says, no. And there's enmity and there's friction between the people of God and Pharaoh in Egypt. And later on in uh, Numbers, recounting this, God says this. um, The day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians. On their gods also the Lord executed judgments. And so clearly, the ten, you know, the plagues, that was not just for the people. That was not just signs and wonders for people. There was an invisible war being waged by God himself against the serpent. And so kind of to conclude, the, the great temptation, I would argue, of our day is rooted in the same temptation that overcame the young men of Rohan in Return of the King at the beginning when I read from it. Sauron was a legend that everyone shook their head yes to. Yeah, we know. We've heard this story. Mordor, Sauron. Yeah, we've heard it. But they hadn't experienced it. They haven't seen it to be real. And so I would ask, like, do we see it as real? Or has it merely become a legend to us? 
Do we see that this war between Satan and God is a real war in which we are participants in, in Christ? Do we see that as real? Are we able to, when we have a fight, maybe with our spouse or our roommate or our friends or a stranger, if we have this, just an angry yelling match fight, are we able to see sin as the culprit and whisper into one another's ear? It'd be weird if you did this to a stranger. Maybe your friend or your, your roommate, don't do this to a stranger. But whisper into one another's ear and say, the Bible says, let, don't let the sun go down on our anger, for that would give Satan a foothold. And then after that angry match, you turn to God and you say, God, please crush Satan under our feet. The great temptation today is to not believe that sin is the cause of all the world's problems. The great temptation is to not believe that sin is the cause of all the world's problems. And when you accept that, you further go along and you do not believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the solution to all the world's problems. That in the midst of these problems is the problem at the heart. That there is need for reconciliation between God and mankind, man and woman, and mankind and creation. And that only uh, Jesus, the snake crusher, can bring this kind of reconciliation. You begin to trick yourself into thinking that the gospel of Jesus is not enough in various situations. It, it won't solve political division. It won't solve ethnic division. It won't solve moral division or worldview division or social division or economic division or broken marriages or loneliness or rebellious children or um, estranged friendships. Or other strongholds of sin. Yet the Bible tells us from the beginning to end that the problem with the world is that it's at war with God. Under the tyranny of the snake. And that at the heart of, this prob- of every problem is this problem. And that Jesus is the snake crusher. The reversal of the curse. The reversal of this problem. And so I wonder if we could take courage and not be like the young men of Rohan. That we wouldn't leave the real b- battle for one that doesn't matter. But rather, we would follow our king, Jesus, until he stomps Satan under our feet. And I want to encourage you just with Romans 16, 20. This is the last words that Paul says to the church beyond like a doxology and his greetings, his final conclusion greetings. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. How will he do this, Paul? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And so as we wait for the return of Christ, let's stand strong in the war and let's wage war by believing in the snake crusher, Jesus. So let's pray. Father, teach us to wage war uh, with the fruits of the Spirit, to overcome evil with good, to forgive sins, to repent when we need to repent, to admonish one another, Uh, with words of encouragement to build one another from Scripture and to know that in doing so, we are participating. We are waging war. Let us look to Christ, who is our head, that we would follow in His example of humility and service and that we would put one another above each other, that we would serve one another, that we would hold other people's um, concerns before we hold our own. Teach us to wage war, Lord, as Jesus waged war. Teach us to wait upon the coming of Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.